welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, Imago Day Eastside. I absolutely apologize for not being here uh, last week, but I had a good excuse. I don't know if it was food poisoning or flu or whatever, too much turkey or too much mac and cheese, but I have never experienced a sickness like that for as long as I can remember. But man, I was tore up and I was ready to come preach. Actually, I don't like preaching on Thanksgiving weekend because I'm just eating leftover after leftover and I usually have a hangover on Sunday and the last thing I want to do is preach, but actually I wanted to preach Sunday. And you guys didn't get to hear me preach. And we didn't quite, because it was a last minute, 11th hour, uh, Ben Sands had to come in and pinch hint. So we didn't get to hit truth. Today's hope. I want to hit truth, tie hope, and our next week's theme together. So you won't get that today. You'll get truth. <laughs> because I think that's where we need to start before we move on to hope. Are you cool with that? Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. If you've got your Bible or, or a phone or uh, a really good, sharp memory and you know those passages by heart, just, just read and recite with me here. You don't have to re- recite with me, but just take a look. Matthew 2, verse 1 through 8. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem was with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem, Judea, they replied, for this is the prophet, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and search carefully for the child And as soon as you find him, report him to me so that I too may go and worship him. Jesus, help us understand this passage and make it real and simple for us as we want to understand who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I want to talk about really the truth about Christmas, the truth, real hard, hard reality about Christmas, the hard truth about Christmas this morning. And I got four things this morning I think are helpful about really helping us understand the truth about Christmas. Any of you guys know the history of the Magi, biblically? Not many of you. Which takes me to my first point. And my first point is this, that whatever is in will be out. (laughs) Whatever is in will be out. Many of us don't know the history of the Magi, but the Magi were extremely popular back in Jesus's day. They were the astrologers. They were the stargazers. 
They knew how reality on a certain level worked. And yet here they are in 21st century out. I think the point I want you to understand is this, that whatever the prevailing wisdom is today, tomorrow will be out. <laughs> Whatever's in today is antiquated tomorrow. Think about it. Y'all my age, I'm 50, you could be in your 40s. Go back to your high school yearbook and look at it. Look at yourself. The outfit that you thought was cool, the hairdo that you thought was dope, right, is out. That's the reality of, of the world that we live in, that whatever is in today is out tomorrow. Whatever we accept now will dissent later. Whatever is today's dogma, tomorrow will, it will be heresy. Blondes were in, then blondes were out, then brunettes were in, then brunettes were out. If you're in the black community, you hear this sort of pigmentocracy, light skins out, then dark skins in, and then dark skins out, then light skins in. Whatever you put your stock in other than Jesus, as C.S. Lewis says, whatever's not eternal is eternally on his way out. You hear me this morning? I remember when I first got saved, the first question that came to my mind, mind you, I grew up in LA in the 80s during the whole, uh, what was that, uh, uh, Miami Vice era, right? I remember when I first got saved, I said to myself, I can't have a Mercedes now. Because in my mind, growing up in the 80s as a teenager, right, Mercedes and fly cars was attached to status. And how could you be a Christian how could you be a Christian and then have to sacrifice and give all that stuff up? And I'm not saying you can't have flight clothes and a nice car or any of that stuff, but that was the first thing that entered my mind. But as a 50-year-old, as I look back at that thinking of a, of, a, of a 19-year-old boy, I'm thinking to myself, how stupid was that? How vain was that? But that was my thought. I remember when I first got saved at 19. My uncle, Uncle Craig, he's an atheist, smart, brilliant man, but he was an atheist. And he wanted to know how I, he wanted to know my conversion story. And so I told him my conversion story and he scoffed at it. And I told him if he didn't get right by the year 1999, <laughs> because I was certain I had heard from the pulpits that, that were preaching every Sunday that Jesus was returning before the year 2000. And I, he, I never forget, he pulled out a paper, he pinned, he said, you want to get that on paper? I said, absolutely. This was 1985. I have 14 years. So we wrote up a contract. I said, if Jesus does not return before 2000, you can have all my possessions, belonging, everything that I have, I guarantee you can take it. But I'm that certain that Jesus will return by that time. And my uncle, who's a character, wouldn't you know it, New Year's Eve, just before the clock struck 2000, called me up and said, I'm sending the truck over. <laughs> but that's what my Uncle Craig does, right? Nobody knows the hour, day, or time, but I was so confident about a particular date that it clouded everything. I want you to understand today, you know 
this to be true in your life. Like whatever's in today is out tomorrow. Whatever you put your hope in other than Jesus will will come crashing down at your feet. That's just the way it is. Whatever idolatry, idols that you place, and that can be even true of a Christian. Whatever thing that you put your hope, your stock, your self-worth, your significance in today will be out tomorrow. And this is what we learned of the, of the Christmas story. This is the hard reality. This is the truth of the Christmas story. It's just as popping as the Magi were back then, they're out today. Just as the soothsayers and the thinkers and the intellectuals and people who, you know, posited modernity that said that is, you know, the new standard, the new epistemology of truth, right? Every hope can be tied to science and then, Europe suffered from a hangover from 1871 to 19, literally 50. And then post-modernity came in and said, we need to diversify our epistemology, our understanding of reality and truth. And God became dead and, and so on and so forth. And yet, and yet the beauty and the power of, of, of the gospel is that the gospel continues to preach, it continues to sustain, it continues to transform upwards to over a billion people. The other truth about Christmas is this, that whatever you've been told or taught or thought about Christianity is the opposite. The beautiful piece about the story, the incarnation of Jesus, is that there's nobody literally at this manger of nobility, of power, or influence, or connection. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. If you know you're gonna start a global movement with billions of people are gonna be transformed, how would you start that movement? Would you start that from a position of power with people who are connected and influential? Would you get on Snapchat, Instagram, and uh, Facebook and make sure you got a nice global reach? Or would you start in the toughest, roughest part of town with the most disconnected people on the planet that are not even remotely close to the center of power, that are literally pushed to the margins? And so everything that you hear about Christianity is super hard, especially when you live in a superpower like America that is so sutured to empire that you get a misunderstanding of what Christianity, because Christianity was never birthed from power. It was never birthed from those that had privilege. It was never birthed from dominant culture. It always started at the bottom. This is bottom-up theology. This is the genius of Jesus. This is the beauty of a God who breaks into the world not the way we would do it. It's totally subversive. It's completely counterintuitive. It's different than how we think and do stuff because we say we're going to launch something. Let's get pretty people and let's get nice stuff and let's get connected folks and let's go launch. And Jesus goes the opposite of that. And you see it right here because all the wrong people when Jesus is born are here. You had magi that were from the east, right? When you were from the East, that meant you were ethnically ostracized. And this is not just, this is not East Side Portland, this is East Palestine, right? And so you had the wrong ethnic group at the manger. 
And not only that, but you didn't have just magi, you had shepherds and shepherds were socially outcast. They were misfits. They were of lower economic class. They had no hope of advancement. They were harassed in the streets. They had no rights in the court. These are the people Jesus associated. These are the people at Jesus's birth. And it's from these folks that Jesus launches a global movement. It reinforces this bottom-up gospel narrative that constantly says the gospel is not for the right people, it's for the wrong people. It's not for the healthy. That's what Jesus said, it's for the sick. It's not for those who want to stay in control. It's for those who are willing to relinquish control. Look at Jesus. Oftentimes when he told parables, he always went to self-righteous, legalistic people and he'd give a parable and he'd say, here's a really bad person and here's a really good person. And at the end of the story, the really bad person gets it and the really good person doesn't because that's the gospel. It is literally upside down and usually self-righteous, moralistic, religious folks never ever get it. That's why they took him to the cross and nailed him. The world either loved him or ignored him. But the beauty and power of Jesus is that Christianity is a religion, it's a faith that is bottom up. It's totally, utterly different than the kind of Christianity that we've told. But the sad reality in America is what? Until a lion gets a historian, tales of hunting will always glorify the hunter. Right? And so the hunter who's been a Christian in this country has told a story from empire that has totally misrepresented the real beauty and power of this subversive Christianity that started with the underclass and went out. And that's why when you see the first global movement or the first early church launch, 3,000 people get launched. It's not launched in Rome. It's launched in Jerusalem. They shook up Jerusalem. They shook up Rome through Jerusalem. Paul, who happened to be a minority, shook up the Greco-Roman world, right? This is the beauty and power of Christianity. This is how God works in the margins. You have peasants and slaves and proletariat winning over magistrates, kings, and people in power. The early church, they said numerically, according to Rodney Starks, a Christian historian said that almost 80 to 90% of Christianity from its inception was birthed from the poor. So whatever you've been told, taught, or thought about Christianity, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. And this is the beauty of Jesus. When he launched this global movement, the beauty is, is that he did everything wrong. He avoided every network. He avoided every power structure, every political party, every academic influence. He did it wrong, which made it right. If you want to live out your faith, just do it exactly opposite than how the world tells you you should live out your faith. Be counter, be different, go opposite, right? Don't trust your instinct, go opposite of your instinct because the natural impulse of the human heart is to want dominance and want power, want empire. And the gospel says, no, we're coming a different way. Hip hop culture says, 
money, power, status. Dominant culture says money, sex, power. And yet the gospel goes a different way. The other truth about Christmas is this. The wisdom of this age can never diagnose, wait, wait, the wisdom of this age can diagnose the problem, but it can't treat it. The wisdom of this age can diagnose the problem, but it can't treat it. You hear me? Who are the, what was the role of the Magi? They were trained to look at stars and then explain how life works. In verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star. They were the stargazers. They knew. And yet they looked to the stars to identify where the child was born. But the reality of the child, who the child was, the freedom that the child represented, they had to look to the scriptures. So they looked to the stars to know where this savior, this child was born. But to identify actually who this child was, they had to look to the scriptures, right? That's when it says, but to you, it says in, in verse three, and when King Herod heard this was disturbed at all Jerusalem with him, and when he had called together all the people, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets have written. They go to the prophets, they go to the scriptures to zero in on who he is. The culture gives you a diagnosis, but not the answer to the diagnosis. I love um, this article that I was reading this week. How many of you have ever read um, uh, Michelle Alexander's book, um, The New Jim Crow? She, she, she wrote this new, she's, she's been a professor at Ohio State University and now she's going to Union Theological Seminary to teach and be a student. And she wrote the new Jim Crow. And she just wrote this letter explaining why she's leaving her post at Ohio State University to go to Union Theological, uh, Theological Seminary to be a professor and a student. And she says this, Many of you are asking, why am I taking this new direction? She said, this week I officially joined Union Theological Seminary in New York City as a visiting professor. I have known for some time that I need to stretch myself, move beyond what I know and out of my comfort zone. As a lawyer, it comes naturally for me to speak only when I've done all my research, know all the facts, and can make my case. Law, policy, and advocacy have been finding ways to wait, have been my world for more than 20 years 
And my singular passion for 10 of those years has been finding ways to awaken people to the racial dimensions of mass incarceration and help them see it is for the human rights nightmare that it is. And yet I now feel compelled to change course. I'm talking, I'm, I am walking away from the law. I've resigned my position as a law professor at Ohio State University and I've decided to teach and study at seminary. Why? There's no easy answer to this question. There are times I worry that I have completely lost my mind. Who am I to teach or study at a seminary? I was not raised in a church, and I've generally found more questions than answers in my own religious or spiritual pursuits. But I also know there is something much greater at stake in, just, in the justice work than we often acknowledge. Solving the crisis we face isn't simply a matter of having the right facts, graphs, policy analysis, or funding. And I no longer believe we can win justice simply by filing lawsuits, flexing our political muscle, or boosting voter turnout. Yes, we absolutely must do that work, but none of it, not even working from the form of political revolution, will ever be enough on its own. Without a moral or spiritual awakening, we will remain forever trapped in the political games fueled by fear, greed, and the hunger for power. American history teaches how these games predictably play out within our borders. Time and again, race gets used as a trump card, a reliable means of dividing, controlling, and misleading the players so a few can win the game. This is not simply a legal problem or a political problem or a policy problem. At its core, America's journey from slavery to Jim Crow to mass incarceration raises profound moral and spiritual questions about who we are individually and collectively, who we aim to become and what we are willing to do now. I have found that these questions are generally not asked or answered in law schools or policy roundtables. So I'm going to a place that takes very seriously the moral, ethical, and spiritual dimensions of the justice work. You hear what Michelle Alexander is saying? Law, policy making, social work, sociology, counseling are amazing tools that I believe on a certain level God has given us to diagnose the problem. But underneath it, if there is not a spiritual component, and if that spiritual component is not attached to Christ, in the end, it does not provide the real bread and solution that transforms the human heart, that gets to the very root of the problem. And that's why Mel Michelle Alexander who's lectured all over the United States and I'm sure around the globe, realizes in all her work as a lawyer and professor at Ohio State University that one of the most important components is being at Union Theological Seminary to get a more spiritual foundation because it's out of that internal reality that society is truly transformed. And that's why the Magi who could identify the star realize the hope of that star would only be found in Christ. And so they had to turn to the scriptures, not to the stars. Lastly, and the final truth is this. 
the wisdom of this age is for the select few. God's wisdom is for everyone. God's wisdom is for everyone. I had my scripture here. Here it is. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 12, it says, recounting Jesus breaking into the world, being born. It says, there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, watching over their flocks. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news, and this will cause great joy for all the people. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Wisdom may be for the select few. You can build a gospel around intelligence, but it's only for that intellectual community. You can build your religion and faith around a culture, but it'll only be for that culture. The beautiful piece about the gospel is, is that when it breaks in, it breaks down every wall, every gender, socioeconomic standard, uh, status, it breaks down every race and ethnicity, all the issues that divide in the gospel, it unites. And this is what you see in the coming of Christ, is that God's wisdom is for everyone. And it's for all. It's not just for the select few. It's not even just for the oppressed. It's for the oppressor. It's not for one particular culture, it's for all culture. And the beauty of the gospel is, is that it is not beholden to any. It can't be encapsulated into one culture. It's for everyone, right? It, it, it speaks and is relevant and can be contextualized to any group of people and speak to their reality in a powerful and yet profound way. And this is what we see in Christ's coming. This is the hard truth about the gospel, is that it doesn't divide. It unites. It does what we can't do. It brings together groups that seem illogical. It's not beholden to any one particular group of people. And yes, it starts from the poor and the oppressed, right? It starts with the disenfranchised, but it moves out into the world. And this is what God does, right? In Acts chapter one and chapter two, Every nation hears the gospel. And what does God use as his instrument of getting the gospel out? What does he use? He uses diversity. <laughs> and it's from that diversity that the gospel goes out to the rich, the poor, the young, the old, the white, the black. You name it, the gospel goes out. Not just for a select few. And so today, as we celebrate that work, not just the beginning of that work, but the ending of that work to solidify this reality, we come to the communion table now and partake of the bread and wine to remind us that there is no more walls division, that there is a truth in Christ that we can experience that is eternal and is never fading away. It's a counter Christianity that's so different 
that we'd be foolish enough to believe that there has there's meaning in actual bread and wine. This is the kind of Christianity and a God that we serve. It's different. And so this morning, let's bow our head, let's pray, let's come to the communion table and serve this God. Today, we thank you for your bread. We thank you for your wine because it represents you. We thank you for your body that was broken. We thank you for your blood that was shed. And so we come with outstretched hands and humble hearts and ask you to give us the power to look to you, to dismantle every idol in our life, to lean into the gospel in a way that transform our lives. I pray, God, thank you that this communion table provides access because the, cry, the cross broke through everything that divides and brings us into a new family, a new way of living and thinking. And so today, God, as we come to this table, we celebrate Christ born into the world and yet Christ taken. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.